0: Galen, Arlen, Beau, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and... Dano! And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxia's listeners. On this edition of the show, we continue our coverage of what is happening in Gaza, uh, what has happened over the past week, beginning with the Hamas attack. Although, let us note that all of this related to Israel-Palestine did not begin with October 7th. And we really do need to understand that. In any case, I was recently reading The New Yorker where I came across an interview by Isaac Chotner of a member of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. I reached out to Al Shabaka shortly thereafter as I believe it was important to feature a Palestinian voice on my show. They got me in touch with Fafi. Nimer of Ramallah to discuss the events currently unfolding he does not hold back in his views Uh, we may have some areas of disagreement but I I think that this is time for hearing a multitude of different perspectives Uh, this is a very difficult time for everyone and I believe that we do need to hear from voices that are in Palestine So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Fatih Nimer. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy uh, could get in touch with me on very short notice. Uh, Things are very wild right now, so I appreciate him taking the time to speak with me. Uh, Fatih Nimer, and I, I hope I pronounced that right, of al shabaka he's a palestine policy fellow there how are you doing
1: i'm good considering the circumstances thank you how are you
0: i'm i'm working through it i've been working day and night as i'm sure you and, and everyone else at uh al shabaka have been as well uh, maybe you could tell my listeners just a little bit about al shabaka and the work they do
1: well we are uh, a transnational think tank a palestinian transnational think tank, the only one uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we have uh, around 200 members all over the world, uh, all specializing in different fields and areas, which really gives us a big advantage in policy analysis, which is our main area of expertise.
0: If you could, could you talk right now uh, just about the conditions in Gaza, not just right now in the immediate, I mean, uh, in the past years? Uh, can you just talk about? What life is is like for people in Gaza based on the reporting we have?
1: Well uh, to understand the situation of Gaza today, I guess we need a little bit of historical context building up to the situation that is unfolding right now. And for people to know, it's important to know that uh, basically the majority of the refugee uh, of the population of Gaza are refugees. Uh, they were herded into this little strip of land. Uh during the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in forty seven and forty eight. This is known and as they have the been Nakba, stuck in there ever since. Right? The Nakba, yes. Or the catastrophe. Exactly. Go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, the, the catastrophe, which was the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians that basically allowed the establishment of the Israeli state. And that was at the expense of the destruction around 500 to 600 Palestinian villages and neighborhoods all over Palestine. So part of that population was corralled into this little strip of land called the Gaza Strip. Historically, Gaza has been larger than this strip, like the province of Gaza, but the strip has been much smaller uh, than that uh, actual area. Uh, their life has been rather difficult, especially since the last 17 years, they've been under a very hard siege where it's very difficult to get in, very difficult to get out. Um, it's it's very tragic there. Uh, the majority of the population, or rather over half of the population are actually children. It's a very young population. Uh, So a majority of them don't even remember the beginning of the siege. They've lived their entire life underneath this siege. And this is just how life is to them. Every few years, there's a big war. And every few years, there's a big tragedy to them. This is just how life is to them. So it's very, unfortunately, uh, a fact of life for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip.
0: I was going to say, I think that's a very important point, because one of the talking points I'm seeing in the U.S. and on social media is all this talk about um, you know, the, the people of the Gaza Strip elected uh, Hamas, you know, more than a decade ago. But, you know, half the people in Gaza right now uh, weren't around during that election. They weren't even born.
1: That's true. But at the same time, that's that's kind of not relevant, really, because let's say that they did, even if they did, like hypothetically, they're still civilians. They're still innocents. International law still applies. Uh, so I feel like a lot of these dis- side discussions are distracting from the main point that these are people that have been put in a cage basically for 17 years, and the world expected them to just die quietly instead of trying to find a situation a solution to them. And the only time they get on the news is when they actually try to strike back. But everything else that they're living through is completely normalized. The water is not fit for drinking. Uh, the the they can't uh, their sewage is being pumped back into the sea because they don't have enough power and the Desalination plant has been bombed multiple times. Uh, they don't have enough power. We have stories, horror stories about children dying because of burning candles because they don't have electricity in the night. All of these things people don't take into consideration when they're thinking about Gaza. People think of Gaza as if it's like a separate country, and this is just like a dispute over land. And if there's one thing that people need to really internalize is that this is a settler colonial situation. We have a part like we have an occupation, a siege, a settler colonial state. That that the largest human rights organizations in the world are calling an apartheid state. It is not a normal situation. We are not neighbors. This is a completely different dynamic. And actually, according to international law, it is Israel's responsibility to take care of the electricity, to take care of the power, to take care of the water, to take care of the sewage, and all the daily needs of the occupied population. But that has not really been done in decades. And there's no pressure on Israel to actually carry out its obligations under international law. Can you talk a little bit about
0: um Gaza as a prison. it's always it's often been called an open air prison. And when I talk to uh people here in the U.S uh, and use that term, I think they may have trouble understanding what that means. I think they may have trouble envisioning the kind of surveillance that goes on, the military checkpoints. Could you uh enlighten my listeners on that?
1: Well, yeah, of course. Um, so basically, the Gaza Strip is very, very small geographical spot, Okay, and even that spot is not completely accessible to Palestinians. We have no-go zones, we have danger zones, so a large part of it, especially the agricultural areas, are not accessible to the people of Gaza. So what this means is that the Palestinians in Gaza are completely held hostage When it comes to water, when it comes to electricity, when it comes to food, when it comes to anything that they need to live, they have to basically... Uh, depend on their warden to let them in. Uh, they are surveilled day and night. It's If you want to see like a, a, a modern understanding of the Panopticon, it will be Gaza. There's so many technologies at work. And Israel is very famous for its spying software. For example, there were a few scandals about Pegasus software going around and people being surveilled all around the world, human rights organizations, anybody, nobody's safe from that kind of thing. So your phones are not safe. Your social media is not safe. Everything is being monitored all the time. And this is actually, come into play with psychological warfare even before the beginning of this war and the other previous wars where they tell people like your time has come it's time for you to leave it's time for you to uh like get out of your homes and did sometimes that's not even like a prelude to anything it's just psychological warfare to create more uh stress on the government there so um You're not allowed to leave It's very difficult to leave And it's important to mention also That the Egyptian government Is complicit in this thing Because one of the borders Of the Gaza Strip Is with Egypt Not only with Israel But again Ultimately The ultimate responsibility Lays with Israel Because it is the occupying power And it is the power That ethnically cleansed The Palestinians And the refugees of Gaza From their homes The areas around Gaza Are actually where The majority of this population Is from Like we hear talks About attacks on these cities And the kibbutz And what have you But most of these Were built on top of these Palestinian villages such as Najd and Huj and other ones that were destroyed in 48 to make way for these settlements. So uh, it is basically for a lot of Palestinians that was the first time they got to see their homes in decades uh, or rather what remained of their homes. But the siege is very, very tight. Even their fishing uh, a radius is determined even by sea. There's a, a naval blockade as well. They're not allowed to go after a certain area of uh, a certain area of the sea. So anywhere they could go. Uh, surveilled from the sky, even the water underneath the earth, they have no control over. Everything is uh, is subject to Israeli control and surveillance. So there's nothing about the Palestinians' life in Gaza that can really be hidden from anybody in the world. There's no privacy, there's no uh, safety, and uh, you can be basically... If, if you're killed, nobody cares because they could just say, claim you're Hamas or Hamas was using you as a human shield, even though there's barely any, never been any evidence of such nonsense. Uh, when we see today that they're destroying entire neighborhoods and they justify it by saying, oh, these were Hamas targets. I mean, you can't destroy like five or six blocks and say these were Hamas targets. I mean, that's absolutely nonsense. It's war, uh, war crimes and they're being justified under these things. And because uh, people like the, the, the campaigns of dehumanization going over the years against Palestinians, against people of Gaza, against Muslims in general. People are very like openly taking up this rhetoric and completely supporting this nonsense. There was a six-year-old child that was killed yesterday in the United States because of this kind of rhetoric and it's dangerous. And reporters are not taking their duties responsibly. They're working as stenographers. They're spreading all these bogus claims that nobody has been able to prove and afterwards they have to make a retraction. But by the time the retraction it's made it's already gone to like 10,000 people or I'm 100,000 people Their attraction barely makes a dent this is the kind of misinformation that's been going on Uh, for the last uh, 10 days or so. So it's been a very difficult situation to actually try and keep a leveled head and debunk what's going on because it's just an overwhelming amount of disinformation. There's an overwhelming amount of disinformation about life in Gaza as a prison, like you mentioned. People are saying, well, why don't they have their own power plant? Why don't they have their own power grid? They're not allowed to. They're not allowed to, very simply. There is a huge, huge list of items that the people of Gaza are not allowed to bring in under the pretext that they could be used to move, to make explosives or they could be used to make tunnels or what have you. And that basically... That includes everything, that includes cement. So you can't rebuild anything. They can't build shelters because they're not allowed to have cement. They can't do anything of the sort and they can only have a certain amount of fuel to fuel their hospitals. So a lot of people were showing skepticism, like how have the hospitals already ran out? It's barely been a few days. It's like, because we're not allowed to have supplies. Were only given supplies through a drip at a certain amount of time, at a certain point in time. Rather, they were even doing calorie intake counts, like they were calculating how many calories Palestinians need to live, and that was the amount of food that was only allowed in. It was a drip. I think it was around two thousand calories a day per person, or such. Uh, but this how is how was that this done? Is the, like, I'm just curious. Absolute...
0: Can you speak a little bit more to that? The calorie intake issue.
1: Yes, this was uh, revealed uh, actually a few years ago, and this was. They claim that this is not the case anymore, but it was claimed that they they calculated the amount of foodstuffs that go into the Gaza Strip to only be enough to sustain that level of calories per day per person. Because even food is controlled, uh, there was some stuff like some foodstuffs on the banned list, stuff like chocolates or nuts, like things that were obviously like not actually security threats, and just these kinds of bannings were done just to make. Uh, a statement or just to just punish the the population there, which is actually the modus operandi right now of what Israel is doing. It's mostly what it's doing. It's thrashing madly at the people. And the most of the people that are dying are women and children and civilians. I had nothing to do with anything. Uh, this is what is actually going on right now. And even their calls to evacuate from the north to the south, they bombed the road from the north to the south. And this is a nine hour walk. So this, not everybody can move, even in the best of days, let alone with uh, a bombed road. And even the Rafah crossing was bombed multiple times with Egypt. So even saying, like, why doesn't Egypt take people in? Why doesn't uh, Egypt help people? I mean, there were some talks about that, but Israel just said no. It vetoed it, basically. And Egypt has not uh, been able to get any food in.
0: I was watching earlier today a... uh... PBS NewsHour uh, coverage of all of this. And they had on one end Ehud Barak uh, from Israel saying, Well, we only momentarily want uh, these Gazans to leave. And then they also had Hanan Ashrawi, who is a friend of this show who's been on before, saying, No, this is, th- this to me appears to be uh, a Nakba part two. Uh, could you uh, give your take on that? Do you think we are witnessing another Nakba?
1: I mean, I think that they would actually like to do that. Uh, it is an ethnic cleansing campaign from the north, at least to the south. There have been ideas floated for years about expanding the Gaza Strip into Sinai and making that like the expanded Palestinian state, and the West Bank is annexed to you know the Israeli state. That was these are plans that were actually floated multiple times in the past few years. So the idea that Palestinians could find themselves in Sinai and able to return is not very alien because that's what actually happened during the Nakba in 1948 and 1947. A lot of people, like the stories say that they left their food on the table thinking that they're gonna be back uh, within hours. Some thought we were back within days or weeks but it's been over 75 years at this point. And that is in contravention to international law. The refugees have a right of return, them and their descendants, regardless of whatever Israelis claim. so there's a very real fear, especially considering that the people of Gaza themselves are a majority refugees. So they've already lived through that. They know what it means like to go out thinking that they'll be right back and not allow back in. So they think that no matter how bad things are in Gaza, at least we're in our own country. But now we have to go and be in a refugee camp in a different country under the rule of somebody else. A lot of them would say, no, I'd rather die in Gaza than go and become a refugee another time in another country.
0: Earlier, I think you made a really important point. When I said, you know, most of these people uh, that are in Gaza now had nothing to do with the election of Hamas, you brought up the point, you know, these are civilians, no matter what, it doesn't matter if they support Hamas or not. Could you speak to the issue of, I guess, double standards in media, or just the way even, you know, even people like myself can fall victim to not talking about this in the right way or not understanding the Palestinian perspective? Because I think sometimes those of us in the West really make some horrible mistakes in how we talk about this.
1: Well, I think if you want want to talk about double standards and the way the media approaches things, I mean, I don't really want to harp on a cliche too much. But if we do look at Ukraine, that is a very, very clear case of how people look at resistance in that case and resistance in the Palestinian case. it would. There was a media frenzy in support of Ukraine uh, and their right to resist. Uh, how to? They were uh, teaching them how to make Molotov cocktails. they were even talking about uh, banning Russian breeds of dogs. Like that was a big hysteria regarding like punishing uh, Russia as a violator of international law. But what Palestinians have learned over the last. 75 years is that international law at the end of the day is just as strong as its enforcement mechanisms and enforcement mechanisms are hinged upon interests and not hinged upon morality or what's right or what's legal or what have you. I think this is a notion that we need to get rid of because it's not realistic. It is a world system that does not care about what is right and what is wrong. Simply put, the West's interests lie with Israel. That's it. There's no conspiracy. There's no nothing. It's as simple as that. And by the way, when it comes to supporting Ukrainians, it's not because they care about Ukrainians. They don't give a damn about Ukrainians. They want to weaken Russia. That's the main thing. The people who are currently spreading the most Islamophobia were the ones clutching their pearls about the treatments of the Uyghurs in China. Suddenly in China, they cared about Muslims. But when it comes to Palestinians, we're all terrorists who want to chop people's heads off. At least that's the narrative. So it's all very cynical system being weaponized to justify things uh, in all different kinds of ways and all different kinds of contradictory ways that are not consistent at all with international law. Because if you want to talk about international law, Palestinians have a right of return. Palestinians have a right of even armed resistance, even though the world community would you know, cry at that uh, suggestion. So th- the idea is that If there's one thing that we need to be wary of when we're talking about Palestine is that this escalation is not separate from what's been going on for 75 years. Palestinians have tried everything, I promise you. In 2018, there was even mass peaceful protests organized in the Gaza Strip to go to the border fence and protest peacefully. They were faced with sniper fire. And now a whole generation of Palestinians is missing either elbows or knees. And there's a whole book about that by Jasper Poirot. Uh, the right to name, which is quite excellent, and covered this topic. Uh, Even when Palestinians call for peaceful boycotts, BDS, for example, it's likened to Nazi tactics. It's like, oh, it's like the Nazi boycott of Jews, even though that's a ridiculous smear. Um, Palestinians even trying to go to the International Court of Justice, which should, in theory, be the most compatible way to air your grievances, in this so-called rules-based system that Canada, for example, and the United States love to talk about. And that was rejected and demonized. So Palestinians are left, they, they can't be protected by this international system. But at the same time, this international system wants to put all these preconditions and dictates on them about how to act, how to react and how not to react. So, what is it left for Palestinians to do other than to just die quietly? And that's something that the international system doesn't care about. Even when we're talking about the peace process, uh, they're even they're trying to marginalize Palestinians and pushing them aside. They're trying to skip over us and go normalize with Saudi Arabia, normalize with the Emirates, normalize with Sudan. Like That was one of the preconditions for peace with Israel, saying, yeah, if you make peace with Israel with a two-state solution, we can integrate you into the region. Now they're trying to do that while cutting the Palestinians out of the equation completely and i don't know what the world expected to happen after keeping people in a cage for decades and just ignoring them and only remembering them when they're actually striking back and not when they're being tormented every single day i was gonna say i know
0: a number of palestinians that i've spoken to over the years uh take issue even with calling this the israel-palestine conflict because i mean there is not really a a palestinian state at this point I mean, this is not a nation-state versus nation-state situation. How are we to frame all of this? Like, if, if it's not a conflict, how, how how should we frame it?
1: I don't think it's a conflict, because conflict has certain implica- implications of symmetry in the capability or uh, at least, you know, equipment or such. Um, it is naked settler colonialism. The The issue with calling it the Palestinian-Israeli question is that it completely removes Palestine from its actual Arab uh, regional importance because it is, after all, the Arab-Israeli conflict, or it used to be at the very least, because there's multiple Arab countries that are still, still areas of them are under Israeli occupation. It, parts of South Lebanon and parts of Syria, they're also under Israeli occupation illegally. Um, And we also, something crucial that we have to remember is that the Arab regimes are very undemocratic, and they do not represent the will of the people. You will see giant uh, protests in every Arab state, but the government will have the most timid reactions and be afraid to talk about anything, because at the end of the day, its interests are with the United States and Europe, and that's where they're going to stick. That's what sources their legitimacy because they don't have a democratic legitimacy or mandate from the people. Because if they did, they would not be doing what they're doing right now. Uh, It's not a coincidence that, for example, in 2011, in the Arab Spring, when it broke out in Egypt, for example, or in Jordan, uh, one of the first targets was the Israeli embassy for protests and to, to go and riot in front of. So I think that there's a huge fear of actual democratic movements in the region. And all this talk about democracy and human rights, we should take it with a huge grain of salt like to like the international based international order the or rules-based international order or what have you whatever you know nice acronym they love to use uh because it's all about interests at the end of the day and we need to stop looking at the international order as anything other than that
0: I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the West Bank because one thing that upsets me and I do think it's a very real double standard is people will talk about what happened on October 7th. But, you know, I saw very few people talk about the rampage uh, of the Israeli settlers in Huara. I believe it was earlier this year. Uh, So it seems like a lot of things are just completely ignored. Can you talk about the situation in the West Bank? Uh, Because it's one that is really overlooked.
1: Well, I think it also has something to do with the scale of the tragedy happening. Like in Gaza, it's much, much larger scale than what's going on in the West Bank. Uh, They're both under a different context. So it's understandable sometimes why things in the West Bank get overlooked for what's happening in Gaza. But the West Bank and also within 48 uh, have their own context of dealing with the occupation and dealing with settlers. In the West Bank, we have rampaging settlers all over the place. It's difficult to go to different cities. Uh, People in Area C which is the majority of the West Bank, 60% of the West Bank is considered area C, which is under the control of the Israeli military, by the way. those are the areas where the settlements thrive. And that's, the, those are the areas where the settlers are basically running around. And some people even described it as pogroms or what have you. But they are going around and they are burning down city the towns. Uh, Hawara uh, is one example that you gave. Turmos is another example. The other day in Kusra near Nablus, they shot a man and his son and they came back to the funeral and shot at the funeral goers again, killing another two people. Uh, they are going, wild, they are being allowed to go wild, and not only that, they're protected by the army because there are some people who think that the army's position, or that, you know, I'm talking about the Israeli army here, some people think it's the Israeli army's job to uh, maintain order in the West Bank and other occupied territories, but that is not true. They are an accomplice to the settlers, and they are an army of settlers at the end of the day. That's where these soldiers come from. They're from the settlers, and they are the settlers. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands at this point. It's not like a small niche population. We're talking about uh, a population Religion doesn't even know that they're crossing the West Bank anymore because the green line is invisible to Israelis. It's only visible for Palestinians. Um, and these are illegal so settlements. These, settlers, these are illegal settlements. It is completely illegal under international law. It is a violation of the Geneva Convention, but, uh, nowhere, Conventions, but nobody cares. It, that's what we're talking about international law. This has been going on for decades. And OK, there's a, an advisory opinion on it, but there's nothing much done. Uh, if if uh, if the international community wants to show how serious it is, then it should start like this is something to actually put sanctions because of because this is such a uh, like a, a huge population transfer into occupied territories. And the Israeli occupation itself is illegal because it is now permanent. It is not temporary and occupation for it to be legal has to be temporary. But when you're moving hundreds of thousands of your population into a territory and investing billions of dollars, um that's not permanent. That's permanent. That's not temporary anymore uh and the thing is people look at uh, youth and think like why would one want to go join with islamic jihad or hamas but if you look at the alternative what's the alternative the west bank we have the palestinian authority which is bending over backwards to please the international community uh it has security coordination with israel it not only uh, criticizes you know violent resistance it even uh you know helps the israeli forces repress any kind of uh, resistance in the Palestinian refugee camps or outside of them. And what has that gained the West Bank? Their, Their political program is basically dead. And there are no aspirations, there are no future, there's no, their political program for two states has long been dead, and that's their only source of legitimacy. So now they're just holding on to power, cooperating with the Israelis, hoping that maybe one day they'll be able to do something about a political solution. But until then, everything is dead. We live under uh, a very strong regime that uh, censors and and, and represses any kind of objection to it. Uh, We don't have any elections so this is this is the this is the other side of the coin like if you want to put down your weapons and actually listen to what the international community did it's still not going to save you because the international community just doesn't give a damn about you. At the end of the day, they are interested in maintaining the status quo. And that's why they've adopted this method called, you know, managing or shrinking the conflict, where they just allow enough economic development to stave off outside out, outright riots, you know, but uh, maintain things where the Palestinians can't actually do anything to challenge the status quo they're in. So they give a little bit of economic leeway, but that's in lieu of an actual political process. And this is the limbo that Palestinians have been stuck in for the last decade, at the very least.
0: Since we've mentioned Hamas a few times, uh, can you talk about what Hamas is and giving your analysis of the events that have been unfolding?
1: Okay, well, Hamas is, uh, it's short for Hakrit al-Muqaam al-Islamiyya, which is an acronym for the Islamic resistance movement. Uh, It was established at the end of 1987 in the Gaza Strip. And the name kind of tells what it's about. It's about resisting the occupation of Palestinians that at that point had been going on for decades without any kind of intervention from the international community. Uh, Their primary purpose was to and is still to resist the Israeli occupation. they are they 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 are uh, uh they follow political islam as their uh, kind of ideology um they were in the elections and won the elections uh, in 2000 in the but um they they are one of the two biggest most uh popular political parties in palestine the other side of that is fatah which is the current uh, party behind uh the now de facto the PLO and the Palestinian Authority, and even though the majority of people around forty percent say that they don't lean right or left towards either party, I mean not that they are politically left or right. It was just a a, a phrase. Uh, they uh, they uh, they still at the end of they vote either this way or that way in elections going forward. But I mean this is now. <laughs> pointless to talk about because there haven't been elections in Palestine uh, since uh, forever ago, basically, since the last parliamentary elections where Hamas won. And there a lot of people don't even see a, a point in elections anymore because the whole political system is the the top you can get in that political system is underneath uh, the like the the Israeli uh, preconditions. You can't get something out of the ordinary. You can't get something that's like actually liberating. Like you have to uh, uh like play by the Oslo playbook, and you have to play by the Palestinian Authority playbook, and that's already tying you down uh, within a system that's been a quagmire for the last twenty five years.
0: What for you are the biggest misconceptions people have about Gaza? Like, from your perspective, what are the biggest misconceptions people have?
1: Some of the misconceptions that we've been coming across in the last 10 days is that um, Gaza was just an independent, you know, political entity that could have developed itself had, you know, the evil Hamas not gone on the built rockets or what have you, or that uh, they could have been, they, they keep saying it could have been the Singapore of the Middle East which is laughable because there is no way that anything uh, of all the treaties that Palestinian Authority signed and so forth would allow for economic development of that scale or that kind. Um, it's important to understand that these people are refugees. It's important to understand that these people have already been ethnically cleansed. It's important to understand that their story did not begin this escalation or the one before that or the one before that. It's important to trace back their story since the 40s. And a thing to understand is that the Israelis are not just you know, a neighboring population that has always been there. We're talking about a population majority of settlers who arrived in the 30s and 40s, and they wanted to establish a state in an area that was already inhabited. And that was impossible because they were such a minority. And to be able to establish their state, they had to change the demographics. And that was done through the NECBA, which was a massive ethnic cleansing campaign. So if you want to actually have any progress or any understanding, we need to begin our story there. Because for a lot of people, their story begins at the last event, or it begins even in 1967, which was the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And those are symptoms. And we can't just treat symptoms. We have to go back to root causes. If you want to talk about root causes, things go back even before the Nakba. We're talking about the first uh, Zionist colonial movement started beginning in the late 1800s. We're not talking about the Second World War, the First World War. We're talking even before that. So I think it's important to understand that um, a lot of misconceptions is that uh, Israel was established as penance for the Holocaust. The world just felt really terrible and wanted to, you know, give the Jewish people a home finally. That is absolute nonsense as well. Again, it's like the the, the roots for establishing Israel began in the 1800s. Uh, the world does not function based on feeling bad or altruism, you know, we had France talking about the dangers of fascism uh, on the European theater, but meanwhile, it was doing genocide in Algeria, uh, Indochina, and all these other areas. So we should need to be able to separate the rhetoric from the actual uh, reasons why things happen. And I think these are some of the main points that should always be taken into account. I think the main thing is to put the historical context properly, because without it, it just seems like random.
0: I think another aspect uh, that a lot of people don't understand is I I will talk to people that are not clued into this history, and they'll say to me things like, I don't know anything about Israel, Palestine, and it just seems like it's a religious war. It's an ancient war uh, that goes back to biblical times. And to me, I think that's a, a misreading. This is about land and this is you know this is not some ancient war of of religions this is about land
1: yes absolutely correct we're not talking about some ancient feud because it's it's easy to relate everything to some ancient you know uh religious bloodlust it's it's an easy solution it's convenient it's all irrational like so nobody's right you know it's all this kind of nonsense but i think one thing that also people need to understand is that did, there were Jewish Palestinians that were already living here before the Zionist settlers arrived. And there are Jewish members of the PLO to fight against the Zionist settlers that arrived. So it's not a religious war. And they're, of course, there are Palestinian secularists, there are Palestinian Christians. Like it's not a kind of holy war that's always being portrayed. And this portrayal of holy war, war has really taken like new heights after 9 11 because it was politically expedient to paint Palestinians that way. It was the easiest way to get public support. But uh, Palestine has always been an area where lots of refugees arrived. And the question was never about refugees, for example, after the Second World War or the First World War, coming to Palestine and living as equals. That was never the issue. We have a large Indian-Palestinian community. We have a Sudanese-Palestinian community. Uh, We have an Armenian-Palestinian community that escaped uh, the, the genocide. Uh, but they all identify as Palestinian, and they all ide- want to come here and live as equals. But the Zionist movement from the very start said that we don't want to come here to live as equals. We want to whisk away the penniless population. That's Hitler Herzl. And he said that that they want to basically establish a colony, and that was their wording. They, they talked about establishing a colony in Palestine. And in the 1800s, that was not taboo. That was actually considered a legitimizing factor for why they deserved the land more. They established the first bank called the Colonial Trust. They had a colonization association and all of these different things. It's really out in the open. You can easily Google it. After the Second World War just stopped being so acceptable, so they started doing this rebrand. But before then, it was openly said that this is a colony. It will fight against the barbarism of the East. And it will be like an outpost for Europe. Uh, they, they, they were even considering having German be the main language and not Hebrew. Uh, There's lots of these little details that people kind of forget in this like romantic Zionist narrative of we returned to the land and you know redeemed it as if it were empty or as if it were some kind of desert that was nothing there. I mean, if you actually look at the, the diaries of the early pioneers, they came here from Russia and Ukraine and they tried to plant barley out of season and they almost died of, died of starvation. Like it's not. <laughs> they refused to listen to the Palestinians telling them that this doesn't grow here. This doesn't grow in this season. Like they came with this, uh, this, this, this colonial entitlement that they're better than us and that they'll never integrate with us. And there's very, very actual like candid expressions of this in the early Zionist pioneers diaries, and they're very easy to find and you can read about them very easily. And it's really at this point, it feels almost like willful ignorance that people still hold on to these old uh, narratives that have been debunked time after time. But it's it's less convenient to kind of grapple that these narratives, these grand narratives are very flawed and very racist, actually.
0: You've mentioned settler colonialism. Uh, a few times now. Um, and I mean, the U.S. has to grapple with its own sins of uh, settlers. So I guess, how do you see, what's the way forward? How do you undo the the sins of settler colonialism?
1: Well, the thing that separates Palestine a bit from the United States is that it's much more recent and it's much more documented and it's much more, you um, Within like, for example, lots of Palestinians still have, uh, refugees still have their keys or deeds to their original homes. They're still, uh, the, I mean, the British, the colonial overlords, for all their faults, they were huge fans of records. And you can find meticulous records of who owned what, in which district and who belongs to what. So the idea of Palestinians being uh, able to return. Um, that it, it is not only technically feasible. I would argue it's morally an obligation for the world. But um the United States also has to grapple with its uh, settler colonial history. It, uh, I mean, we, we still have today reservations and we and it's not just in the physical elimination of the natives, it's also in the the logic of the state, this carceral state. Uh, I mean, the New York uh, Police Department has a bigger uh, budget than a lot of countries in the world. It's this and uh, uh, and the United States is one of like the biggest purveyor of violence and has dozens of bases all over the world. It's like this whole imperial ideology that the United States is still living off of, and I think that's why uh, countries like Canada, Australia, and Israel are natural allies. They're all settler colonies. They were all started this way. They're all built on natives being displaced so that the settlers were framed as stronger, smarter, more civilized, more worldly. They, they deserve the land more than anybody else. And this is, you can see this very easily in the propaganda of the early Israelis. They're talking about making the desert bloom because, oh, the natives didn't know how to grow things, even though that's, we have records that show that that's not true. This Here are how many agricultural products they used to be produced before Zionism. Uh, and uh, we have all these records, but we never need Palest- hear Palestinians like bragging about this stuff because it never occurs to them because, I mean, I was here, I was born here, I was always here. That's reason enough for me to be here. But the Israelis, they need to justify why they deserve the land more. They need to justify why they came and displaced the whole people to build their own society there. And this is uh, something that a lot of their propaganda focuses on. If we want to actually move forward and reach an actual, like, Point where there's actual peace, we have to tackle this. We have to talk about the Nakba. We have to talk about uh, the origins, and we have to have uh, actual decolonization, decolonization between the river and the sea. It is nonsense to talk about partitioning a land in two, especially the ridiculous partitions that are given like in 47 the partition plan wanted to award a third of the population 56% of the land and 56% of the best land not only any land even though they had barely been living there for a decade or two uh and by the way that plan was just a suggestion it was an actual plan it was not binding in any way shape or form just so that we're clear uh it was actually a violation of the UN's own charter to suggest that to try and force it um but uh We need to tackle with the original sin of Zionist settler colonialism and Palestinian refugees need to be returned. Basically, Miani. International law, you have to go back and look at international law and apply it completely without any kind of bias. Palestinian refugees have a right of return to go back where they are. Territories need to be freed. Uh, Palestinians should be able to go wherever they they are coming from, wherever they are from. They should have free movement. And there should be a state that represents all of its peoples, not a specific ethnic group that's built to specifically benefit one ethnic group over the other. An egalitarian state. For everybody who is interested in actual real decolonization, I don't think Palestinians are interested in becoming Israeli citizens. The Palestinians want a decolonized state between the river and the sea, and a lot of people would read that as to mean genocide for
0: the Jewish right, people I, already I was there. Ask absolute you about nonsense. That. Okay,
1: no. No, no, This this has been the this has been in the PLOs like uh like the one state has been in the PLOs suggestions for forever. Nobody ever mentions about the genocide of the people already. They were talking about a state, a decolonized state for everybody, where everybody's equal. It's a democratic state, and one person, one vote, and that's it. Uh, obviously, it will come with ending the privileges of the settlers It will come ending privileges that a lot of people are not going to like, and they will perceive it as eliminationist, but that is not anybody has ever put that forward in an eliminationist manner. But for some people, like a lot of people, unfortunately, from a lot of white people in South Africa after the fall of apartheid, they just simply immigrated because they couldn't bear to think to live as equals to the people that they've been oppressing all of their life. And unfortunately, a lot of those people moved to Israel. So there's a little bit of uh, a reasoning like it's it's why there's such a strong alliance and relationship between South Africa and apartheid South Africa and Israel during all those years of apartheid. So this is what Palestinians have always been calling for, but there's always this kind of uh, framing of Palestinians as savages, as animals who just want to go out of their way and massacre everybody like they're being possible to live in, as if that wasn't how the land was before Zionist settler colonialism, before nation states. There were no nation states. Nobody cared who was uh, in which area, in Palestine at the very least. Uh, this whole nation state Idea was very recent to the Middle East. It only started gaining traction in the 1900s, not uh, like Europe, which was you know hit with that earlier. And we can see the different logics of thinking is that the Zionist movement, which sprung up from Europe, is also influenced by uh, European ethno-nationalism and European you know blood and soil ideology that says each ethnic group needs to have each state. This was completely foreign concept for Palestinians, and this is why they were so it was so difficult for us to actually. Uh, you know, uh, martial support because this idea was so familiar for Europeans that they were able to support the Zionist movement uh, almost reflexively as an extension to them. So in other words, you're saying, you know, there needs to be
0: a a democratic solution. You know, that could mean a one-state solution in which, I mean, it it would allow uh, both Jewish people and Palestinians to live together. Is is that one way that decolonization could pan out essentially
1: basically my idea of decolonization is that it shouldn't matter if you're jewish or non-jewish it shouldn't matter if you're arab or non-arab like this is a state that's going to be for everybody living in it and these are the rules for living here you have to be you have to not have a superior position over anybody else regardless of ethnicity because in israel currently Um, their law discriminates very heavily based on your nationality and your nationality is based on your ethnicity and that cannot be challenged or changed. You can be a Druze national, you can be a Jewish national, you can be an Arab national, that cannot be changed or challenged in court. Um, So that's a a reason why there can never be any kind of actual harmony uh, in the Israeli state if it would actually have... uh, A a change in demographics. That's why they're so obsessed with demographics and keeping a Jewish majority because they know as soon as a non Jewish, like as soon as the demographics shift a little bit, they know that their state will cease to be any kind of uh, democracy or any kind of uh, place where people can live equally. And it's even called an ethnocracy by uh, scholars such as Oren Yiftachil which is a state basically built from the ground up to privilege one ethnic group over the rest. And the only reason why it's not so naked apartheid in certain areas is because there is a Jewish majority. And this Jewish majority was only created through the expulsion of the original inhabitants of the land. So this is why Israel is really terrified of any kind of demographic shift. This is why they have laws saying that Jerusalem cannot have uh, an Arab population over a certain threshold. This is an actual thing created by a commission called the Gaffney Commission uh, in the 70s. Uh, this is absolutely ridiculous to imagine any other country doing a law like that, saying like you have to, to, to maintain a threshold of a certain population in certain areas. Uh, but this is the logic of ethno-nationalism. This is the logic of Israel we've been fighting against for decades now. And it's about time that the world understands what's going on and actually uh, put their money basically where their mouth is.
0: There were just uh, a few more things I wanted to touch upon here. Uh, the first is, I, I think sometimes I, I will find Americans that will uh, express sympathy for Palestinians, but then on the same token, it's almost like they expect Palestinians to be perfect victims.
1: And it's easy to be in solidarity with, some, with someone that is like just enduring stoically forever, uh doesn't inconvenience you, doesn't uh makes things very simple actually for your solidarity. Um But this is a very, very difficult expectation on all peoples. And as I'm sure you understand from your context over in North America, when it comes to movements like Black Lives Matter and such, there are no perfect victims. They will always find a way to make it that you deserve what was going. Breonna Taylor uh, in her own house murdered, but it was still somehow flipped by the right wing uh, media that, oh, well, if only her boyfriend or if only like, no, they entered her house illegally. Um, this is the kind of issues that we have to deal with because Palestinians always have to justify basically their humanity. They have to keep proving their humanity over and over. Whenever we make statements, we have to do 50 disclaimers that, oh, we distinguish between A or B, or we distinguish between, uh, you know, when we talk about Zionists, we don't mean all Jewish people and such, but that's never afforded in the other direction by the way. Nobody ever asks Israelis to come out and condemn uh, the killing of Palestinian civilians or asks them to differentiate between a or b we are always taught to be very careful with how we talk to people and how we present ourselves because this is how fickle uh, this whole perfect victim mentality is and, and unfortunately, it puts an amazing amount of the- stress on palestinians Oh, for sure. And honestly, as a people under, you know, uh, colonialism for 75 years and occupation for uh, for all that time, it is incredible that we are tasked with safeguarding not only the safety, but also the feelings of a lot of our oppressors. We have to be perfect and politically correct with everything we say. Otherwise, it will be turned against us and the justification for our murder just keeps going up and up. So, yes, it is a lot of stress on Palestinians. And lately there's been, Palestinians have been kind of fed up with that. And this whole transactional idea of solidarity, it's like, you know, bombing people is wrong regardless of if they, what position they have towards you or not. And Palestinians are basically done with paying for the guilt of Europe and the crimes of Europe and the pogroms and the Holocaust of Europe. The Palestinians had no role in all all of that. Why would you give a piece of Palestinian land to establish Israel here? Go establish it, for example, in Bavaria if they're so sorry about what's going on. But the thing is that the world loves to say, uh, never forget, never forget. But they do forget and they do forget a lot. It's just, it's a lot of, it's more about, showing or performing, never forgetting, than actually not forgetting. Because Palestinians have been forgotten for a long time. And sacrificing Palestinians and their society was considered an acceptable loss for the world, quote unquote, uh, as long as the they could get to, to establish the Israeli entity here. Uh, the Palestinians do not factor in, they're not part of the equation, and they can easily be removed from it, even if we somehow pushed ourselves into the equation and this is something that the world has to reckon with and it's not up to Palestinians to keep reminding the world that we are indeed human, we are tired of reminding the world that we're human, we're tired of reminding the world and debunking myths that have been going on for 75 years, debunked a million times now, but it's just so much easier to to regurgitate them to, to actually consider that hey maybe my worldview is not 100 percent correct or maybe I've been told some lies and you know if if you, you recall the media in the last week have been seeing any any statement by the Israeli occupation army an army that is infamous for doctoring footage and infamous for lying and infamous for misrepresenting facts you're just taking their statements as face value because they're no longer journalists they're stenographers and that is absolutely unacceptable like the, the 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 complete fabrication of 40 beheaded babies or what have you that had people going out in a rage and it turned out that there's absolutely no source for that no confirmation but when it comes to Palestinians on our claims, we have to cite 50 million, you know, million uh, peer-reviewed articles, scholars, empirical evidence. When it comes to Israeli claims, it's just like, oh, one uh, colonel said that at one point and there's no need to, to verify the claim. And that's how they run with it. So this, this, this is this way also that the, the media plays in demonizing Palestinians and keeping us on the defensive in such a way where we have to keep explaining that. Basically, no, we don't deserve to get murdered.
0: I do want to ask you, I think this is a very hard moment for a lot of people. Uh, so for me, for example, uh, I know people that died with the events of October 7th. I also know people that I don't even know if they're alive now in Gaza. I have, I have friends and contacts in Gaza, a photojournalist. That's I, I don't know where they are. They could be dead for all I know. So I guess I wanted you to just comment on the emotional states people are in, because I know there's there's people that lost loved ones on October 7th, and I see people losing loved ones now. What do you want to say to people that have lost loved ones uh, in, in both what is happening now and on October 7th?
1: Well, ultimately, if we we're going to talk about that... Um... I'm sorry, it took until the 7th of October for people to pay attention, and the Palestinians have been murdered for decades without anybody paying attention to them. Ultimately, everything goes back to the Israeli regime and its colonization of Palestine. If there was no occupation, there would be no resistance. It's as simple as that. My comment is that you cannot put 2 million people inside a cage for decades dehumanize them, cut off water, cut off food, bomb them every few years. They used to call it mowing the lawn, bombing Gaza, mowing the lawn. That is the amount of dehumanization that is being put on Palestinians. And you cannot call that sustainable. And the fact that people crawled out of hell, I'm not going to pontificate about the morals of crawling out of hell. You created the hell that they were in. Is there anything else
0: you want to say in closing? What would, what would you hope that Americans, what would you say to them? Uh, what can they do?
1: I think it's important for Americans to understand that the way that the media has been misrepresenting and running with unverified claims for the last week, they should take all their media with a giant grain of salt based on that. This is the standard for reporting on Palestine. And when they hear things about Palestine or things happening in Palestine, they should have that same critical eye for what is going on. Um, Mobilization is good. Direct action is good. Uh, Just make yourself heard that pro-Palestinian voices should not be bullied. They should not be censored, even though there's a lot of censoring going on right now. But we should be able to come out and reject it and have a strong position. Don't try to go appeasing because you can't appease. There's absolutely no way to appease what's going on. The international community is not interested in your appeasement. Uh, this wishy-washy, sidedism doesn't work They're, because we're not talking about a symmetrical situation, we're not talking about two equal populations, we're talking about population under settler colonialism and a population that's benefiting from that. The people around Gaza were living at the expense of the people inside Gaza, and they cannot live at their expense in prison forever without having consequences, and this time the consequences actually harmed Israel because they usually harmed the Palestinians. And this is something to keep in mind when you read about Gaza in the future.
0: How can my listeners keep up with your work and the work going on at Al Shabak? I think you also have another website, Decolonize Palestine. Tell my listeners about that.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I work at Al Shabak. I'm the Palestine Policy Fellow. That is my uh, job. Uh, You can follow us on Al Shabak, our website. You can follow us at our social media accounts. We publish Uh, policy uh, briefs, analysis, and so forth from our uh, members from all over the world. Uh, Personally, I have a website uh, called Decolonize Palestine that I started with my uh, wife. And uh, it's basically kind of like a database of myths, introductions to Palestine, and how to kind of debunk the biggest Israeli talking points that have been shown to be false time and time again. And thank you again, Fathi,
0: for coming on Parallax Views. It's very much appreciated this time. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope that you got something out of my conversation with Fathi Namir of the Al-Shabaka Palestinian Policy Network. Also, uh, if you have any suggestions for guests you would like to hear on this topic, please reach out to me on Twitter or by email at ParallaxViewsPod at ProtonMail.com. Also, if you can support me on Patreon.com slash Parallax Views, one more time, that's Patreon.com slash Parallax Views, it would be greatly appreciated. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.G. view To Parallax with Jeralax Michael's, Jeralax Michael's, Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If
1: nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety, problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom.